Welcome to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest this week is virtuoso bass player Stu Ham. First of all, let's talk about gaming Spotify. The problem with that is when someone games Spotify, it takes money away from legitimate artists and songwriters. And in this case, it's pretty egregious. A company called Sosa Entertainment, led by Jake Notch, who's a pretty young guy, 20, sued Spotify for a huge amount of money. First of all, they say that there were 550 million streams that Sosa Entertainment was not credited for. So they turned around and they sued Spotify for $150,000 per stream. Spotify, on the other hand, countersued. And what they found was that Sosa Entertainment had 23,000 artists, all with the variation of the same name, Legato. And they had 2 million tracks. Now, think about this. A record label of 23,000 artists and 2 million tracks. That gives you an idea how out of whack this is already. Then on top of it, Sosa hired a bot to make millions of fake accounts to play all these songs. So then it gets a little crazier. So then Sosa Entertainment turns around and they also sue Apple, Google, YouTube, Amazon, SoundCloud, Pandora, Deezer, iHeartRadio, and more. When Spotify looked into this more, they found out that they actually had banned this company in 2016. And in order to get around the ban, Sosa Entertainment then changed the names of the artists and distributors in order to try to dodge Spotify's fraud detection system. And then when they looked at the number of fake users on Spotify, they found out that there would be like 5,500 users that came from a small town that only had a population of 10,000. And that an album might go from zero to almost 750,000 streams in two days, which doesn't happen even with the largest artists. So it's possible that Sosa Entertainment could have gotten away with this if they didn't get greedy. And you might want to chalk this up to the youthful arrogance of CEO Jake Nash. He's only 20 years old, so this has a lot to do with it, I think. But what's going to happen now is now the wrath of not only Spotify, but Apple, Google, YouTube, and Amazon is going to be coming down on them for all this. All I can say is that what ends up happening here is whenever someone tries to game the system, they wind up taking money from legitimate artists and songwriters, which isn't right. So hopefully this will take care of itself and send a message to other people that are thinking about trying the same thing. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyowinnercircle.com. You can also sign up for my free vocal mixing techniques mini course at bobbyosinskicourses.com. And you can download free ebooks and PDF downloads on mixing, production, mastering, and social media at bobbyosinski.com forward slash free hyphen resources. <laughs> Now, this is an interesting article, especially for an Apple user and an Apple laptop user. Apple just received a patent for a touch-enabled MacBook Pro. Now, for all the people out there, and there's more and more of them all the time, that think of the computer as their instrument, now it will be even more so, because the computer itself 
can be used as a controller. Yeah, the patent was to make the whole area below the touchpad a touch-sensitive surface. And not only that, make the keys from the keyboard touch-sensitive as well. Now, obviously, this is going to be user-customizable, so you don't accidentally trigger something that you don't want to trigger by just putting your hands on it. But think about the possibilities. This could be a fantastic digital audio workstation controller or a keyboard controller or a VST controller. You might want to specify shortcuts and gestures to control apps. Could do all sorts of things right from your computer, right from your laptop. The mind spins when you think about the possibilities. Now, I should caution, this doesn't exist yet. And we don't even know if it exists in the lab, but we do know that there's a patent and it was granted. So look for this in the future. This is a touch-enabled MacBook Pro. My guest today is Stu Hamm, who's one of the world's premier bass players and clinicians. His unique and innovative two-handed tapping technique proves that even the bass can be a solo instrument in the hands of a virtuoso player. Stu has recorded and toured with a who's who of guitar heroes, including Steve Vai, Joe Satriani, Frank Mbali, Carl Verhaeen, and Michael Schenker. He's appeared on a slew of magazine covers, released eight solo albums, has a number of signature basses, as well as a series of books and instructional videos. During the interview, we traded Frank Zappa stories, spoke about developing a style from traditional walking bass, how he incorporated tapping into his playing, pain management from playing the instrument, and much more. I spoke with Stu via Zoom from his home in Los Angeles. Let's go back to the beginning here. Tell me how you got started into music. You know, I come from a whole family of musicians. My dad was uh, Charles Ham, was uh, the president of the American Musicology Association. And when he was growing up, he was a composer and ethnomusicologist, and then uh, wrote a bunch of books on Charles Ives and popular music in America. He's best known for a couple of books on the history of popular music in America. And uh, my mom was a voice teacher and an opera singer. And then I had an older brother uh, who's six years older than me that uh, we were pretty close and he had all these weird records in his room like Sun Ra and you know Live Evil and Mahavishnu and Cream and all these weird things so I'd sneak into his room and listen to all this weird stuff and you know my dad played poker with John Cage they were like buddies so wow. when I hear 20th century modern music I feel at home you know so, yeah, yeah. The, the cool thing was like I said I was exposed to lots of music and pop music was treated as seriously as classical music or performance art by non-June Pike or whatever, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And then, and then, you know, I played a bunch of different instruments. I played uh, flute for years and years and um, I played uh, piano for years. And then, um, you know, there's a couple different stories about why I started to play bass. One is that, you know, I was a big Danny Bonaducci fan because growing up in Champaign, Illinois, I would look, you know, kind of chubby red haired dude, look kind of like, the bass player for the Partridge family. And um, uh, also, you know, they're in the Midwest. The high school stage band was really popular, and we had, like, the state champions every year. And they had, I mean, even in my junior high school, they had, like, two jazz bands, you know, the A and the B. It was wow. 
very serious and very competitive and really good. You know, I mean, we were sight reading charts that, you know, it was pretty good. So uh, I started playing bass and uh, immediately just felt that this was the instrument for me and got some good encouragement early. Okay, so how did you make the transition to bass, though? Was there someone influential in that, in that decision? I mean, like I said, I was always around, so, you know, so much different kind of music. And, I mean, it was a number of things. It was Danny Bonaducci. It was one day there was a rock band playing at the park around the corner from my house in Illinois. And I went, and the bass player had this green Fender jazz bass with a matching headstop and, and one of those custom amps with the, the Nagaheim padding and the chrome portholes. And I was like, it's <laughs> a white curly barbecue cord. And I just, I thought it was the coolest thing in the world. Um, so I got 1973, I got my first bass. It was like a red pawn shop, Alvarez, Les Paul copy, and a book called Mel Bay's Easy Bass Method. And then before you know it, I really learned by playing upright and electric, uh, reading through chord changes, walking, you know? Yeah. And then it was about a year and a half of playing bass in a big band before I ever played, um, you know, with some dudes like in a rock band without music. And the first song we learned was Whooping Post, you know? So wow, it was good. Wow, what a pedigree. That's awesome. <laughs> so then you went to Berkeley. Yeah, you know, my dad um, got um, the job as head of the music department at Dartmouth College. So when I was a junior in high school, we moved from Illinois to uh, Hanover, New Hampshire, Vermont, right on the border of New Hampshire and Vermont. And uh, there really wasn't, you know, really wasn't a school band to speak of out in the woods. So at that time, I started playing in... Um, you know, uh, ski resort, top 40 and jazz bands. I was in a frat band at Dartmouth College, you know, when I was a senior in high school. And then I went to Berkeley. I, I auditioned actually for a New England Conservatory, but I didn't get in. Thank goodness. And then uh, 1978, I went down to Boston and went to Berkeley. Berkeley was influential in a lot of ways to you. I mean, it was. I mean, it was, it was it, at that time, you know, I mean, there are more options now, but it's still sort of there was there. There was North Texas State. You know, I, I think if I'd stayed in Illinois, I probably would have ended up going to like Indiana, which had a really good music program, a little more on the, you know, sort of marching band, traditional. I'm sure they had a popular music program, but there's, if you're serious about it, and maybe then, certainly then, probably now, you know, just to go and be around other people that are that serious about music and be involved in it and enmeshed in it 24-7, you know, it was great. I hadn't gotten straight A's in years, my first year at Berkeley. <laughs> I was the same way, actually. <laughs> Where did you go to school? Berkeley. Wow, what years? 77 through 79. Oh, so we were there. So we, um, that's when what? Studio 8 was a four track, right? Or maybe eight track? It was eight track, yeah. Wow. And then they had the other little studio across the little porthole, right? Studio B. I built that. Man, now I go back and, you know, it's just insane. The resources or lack thereof. When we went there, we're just, you know, ridiculous. Yeah, I know. It was really crazy. But the one good thing about, I guess it's going to any college, it's the people that you meet and the people that, that you continue to be friends with throughout the rest of your life. Absolutely. And certainly that was the case for you because you, you've met partners in music. Man, partners and, and best friends. I, I, I guess it was last year we went and, you know, Steve Bailey, the head of the bass department, is a, a friend of mine. And I was on tour and we had an off day. So, we ended up playing uh, like a, a the orientation for the summer program. And it's the same thing. It's, it's I think Steve was saying, it's like, you know, look around you because these guys you meet are the people you're going to be making music with the rest of your lives. And I met Steve Vai there. 
you know, I was just past, I mean, when I got there, you know, every night at Pooh's Pub, it was, you know, Steve Smith or, you know, uh, Tommy Campbell and, you know, Victor Bailey or, or Tim Landers or, you know, I mean, yeah. Mike Stern, we used to go see Mike Stern play when he still just played a Strat through a Marshall. Yep, I remember. You know, at, at Pooh's and at, at Michael's and, you know, I used to stalk Jeff Berlin, you know, at all the jazz clubs. And I mean, it was amazing. Yeah, yeah, it was really a good time. Okay, so where did you go after that? Uh, after two semesters of Berkeley, I went on the road with an Elvis Presley impersonator because uh, it seemed like a good idea to go out at the time to go out and make some money playing music. And uh, my girlfriend was the keyboard player in the band. So I did that for about a year. And we played, uh, uh, you know, Holiday Inns all over West Virginia and the Eastern Seaboard. And uh, it was pretty crazy. I got a I got a bass solo during Polk Salad Annie, and uh, played flute when we did the you know Dixie medley. Yeah. You know, so long, long time ago, and I did that for about a year, and then crazy enough, left that gig, and went back to Berkeley briefly, and then ended up in I guess '81. Uh, I went to Germany and um, again did, did a tour with a at the time an East German trumpet player in his jazz big band. His drummer was my roommate at Berkeley, so there's the connection again. Yeah, I spent the summer of '81 in in Aachen, Germany, touring around all of Germany and in the Netherlands. And then I got a call from Steve, and he, he said that you know Zappa had a uh, was auditioning bass players, and um, he sent me the chart for uh, Black Page and Moan Herb's Vacation, and I shedded it and got home from Germany and flew out to to California and recorded with Frank for a couple of days. And it went well. And then he asked me if I was going to stick around. He didn't record on Sunday. So we recorded like Friday and Saturday. And then he said, do you want to stick around and record Monday? And Monday, I had tickets to see Miles Davis at Kicks Disco. Remember Kicks? Yeah, yeah. It was right, yeah. So, and it was, and I was playing the Michael Gibbs, Gibbs big band at the time. So Michael got me tickets. So, you know, there, there's like Cicely Tyson and Michael Gibbs. And, you know, and I hadn't seen my girlfriend. I, you know, I hadn't gotten laid in Europe for like, you know, four months. So. And I was never, I mean, a bad career choice, but I was never a big Zappa fan. You know, I mean, I like the funny stuff, but for me, like his guitar playing didn't really do anything. Hmm. You know, I, I respected the musicality. Um, you know, I, well, that's all I'll say. But uh, it was great. I mean, that's a, a memory I'll always have, certainly, of, uh, you know, seeing, you know, Marcus and Bill Evans and Miles and Stern and, you know. You know, it's funny about the Black Pages. It seemed to be the, standard of how he'd evaluate somebody i can remember he said to us one day he said I'm, I'm looking for a keyboard player but he has to be really good and there was a guy that i knew who was a teacher at berkeley who had just moved out who shall remain nameless who, who was really good <laughs> i thought he might be perfect for the job so frank said here's two pieces of music and one was the black page and i don't even remember what the other one was and gave him a week to shed it well this guy had somewhat of an attitude and when he came in, Frank noticed that right away. Frank does not suffer fools very well. Guy started to play the Black Page, got about four bars into it, and was not doing well. And Frank said, wait, 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 stop. Play it without your thumbs. So now the guy's playing without his thumbs, and he's really sweating. And Frank goes, wait, 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 stop, stop. Play it from the last bar forward. So now he's playing it backwards without his thumbs. Finally, a couple minutes into it, Frank stops him, and he says, you know, you're good, but you're not that good. I know three drummers that can play this better than you. Yeah, I've heard uh, from Chad, I've heard some stories that uh, 
you know, in one way you're funny and the other way, I mean, he was pretty mean yeah. to dudes that he didn't respect musically. I've heard stories of him embarrassing people on stage, you know, and that's kind of like, I don't know where that's coming from, you know. Now, I got to tell you, I did see a, a side of him that most people didn't. We were at the AES show back when it was in New York and it used to be at the Waldorf Astoria. Wow. And all the, the exhibits were in rooms, in hotel rooms. And I'm coming down one side of the hall. He's coming down the other. We're the only people there. And he says, stops me. He says, I'm going up to Sinclair. Why don't you come with me? So we get in the elevator. We go up. And we come out. There's a kid. And he must have been about 16 years old. And he has a, a little pig nose amplifier and a guitar. And he's tapping. And he, and he grabs Frank and he says, Frank, Frank, come and hear me. Come and hear me. Frank says, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll come back in a little bit. Frank goes in his, in the Sinclair booth. And of course, it's so busy in there and everybody wants a piece of Frank. Half hour later, the kid comes, taps him on the shoulder. Says, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll be there. 45 minutes later, this happens again. The kid goes, Frank. He says, okay. We go out into the corridor and we go into a little quiet corner and the kid starts to tap. He's playing, and he's so nervous, he's he's messing up. He's not doing well. And Frank stops him, and he says, that was really great, man. Can you play something else for me? And then his confidence shot through the roof, and he was amazing. And it was Stanley Jordan. Oh, wow. Yeah. Look at that. Look at that. That was a side that not many people saw of him. He could be very uh, helpful. You know, I, I in fact, I, I played the very first Sinclair We. When we first moved to Hanover, we stayed for a year in John Appleton's house. Oh, yeah, there you well, go. Well, he was in, like, Sweden or something. And we used to go down to the lab when they were messing around with the original Sinclair here. Wow. There at Dartmouth, so, yeah. yeah, that's right. That was uh, all from there, right. Okay, so you did the Elvis impersonator, came back to Berkeley, and then what? Flew out to California, didn't get the gig. I guess I, I, guess I lived in, in Boston for a while. Those are sort of the lost years working at the White Hen Pantry there in the corner of Common Mass Ave and from midnight to eight. And then, you know, doing some gigs and stuff, but it was just sort of like, you know, broke, had my bass stolen and, you know, I see pictures of myself. I was like scary skinny, you know, I'm broke and all that stuff. And then Steve called again. Thank you, Steve. And said that he had quit. Um, Sabbath's band was going to do a solo record and he wanted me to come out to California and record it. And if I wanted, I could, um, I think I paid him like 50 bucks a month to sleep on the couch in his studio, you know, and he would, he was paying me like five, $7 a day, you know, to record and rehearse. <laughs> so, you know, I'm almost evened out. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, uh, so I thought about, you know, living around and, um, at that point I was like, so broke, I was going to move to DC where my mom lived and like get a job in a shoe store or something, you know, and then. He does what always does. Fate steps in. And uh, so I thought about, you know, moving to California or living with my mom. And and I ended up in Silmar, you know, recording the Flexible record. Mm. And uh, and that just led to all sorts of things, you know, that's just sort of, sort of the start of it. And then it was such an exciting time for for music and bass, especially for that kind of stuff. You yeah, know, the, yeah. The him and Joe, instrumental rock. You know, you've got, you know, when I was growing up, there was, you know, okay, there was, Paul McCartney and Chris Squire and John Atwell, and I loved him, but you know, okay, here comes Stanley Clark. Here comes, you know, November 8th, 1978, the Orpheum Theater. Here comes Jocko and Weather Report. Yeah. You know, changed the game. And then I never really, you know, since I really did one of the last people to come from the old school, I mean, I literally learned to play bass by playing walking bass lines. Who can say that today? Yeah, right, right. Right, right, right. So, um, 
and playing piano and loving Glenn Gould and, you know, Rostopovich and, you know, hearing one person play an instrument always excited me, but I'd never thought about the bass that way, really, you know, had never heard anyone play like an unaccompanied, use bass as a solo instrument. And then, you know, seeing Steve you know, and Stanley Jordan kind of starting experimenting with tap, even though I'm sure it was done hundreds of years ago, mm-hmm. you know, it just led me to try to uh, figure out some of the arrangements of my piano repertoire on the bass, like Gershwin's Prelude Number 2. And then, you know, I figured out that instead of taking two notes, you know, one to fret it, one to sound it, if you just tap down the note, your other hand could do something contrapuntal. Uh, and that just sort of led, and then obviously, you know, learning out the fingerings, where I stole all my writing from Debussy, you know, working on the children's corner. Uh, and then through Steve, I guess I met, um, I met Joe and, uh, and then that took off. So exciting times. Coming from walking bass and pretty much doing that when you first started and then developing to where you are now was playing with Steve on that first album. Was that like the turning point for you? Uh, well, I mean, it was, it was certainly a turning point for my career as far as getting out of Boston and getting to California, you know, I mean, just being around those people and, you know, Steve was well-connected and, uh, I was auditioning for, I was in LA, I was auditioning for all these pop bands that I didn't get, you know, Cher, Oingo Boingo, mm. who's the funny guy, um, like out, you know, all these gigs. I was, so I was kind of in the scene. So, I mean, yes and no, as far as the technique, I mean, this, the, the, the music that I ended up making was a lot different. I got to say one thing that, you know, the amazing thing about that flexible record is that that was done on like a reel to reel. And every time, you know, this was before the, I remember then when TC or whoever sent him like the first harmonizer, you know, where he literally had to physically play that, you know, and then double it and triple it and do it like eight or 10 times. There was no just scooching it around on pro tools, you know, yeah, right, then, right. then they come out with a, with a, you know, uh, an effect where you just play it and it'll harmonize it in whatever mode you want. But I think people have a hard time realizing how just precise that was, you know, and coming from, from Zappa, you know, being in the studio with him was pretty freaking stressful, you know, because he has an incredible ear and he's coming from the really strict Zappa thing. And it was, it seemed it was, you know, an exercise of not making a mistake, which isn't often conducive for making good music. Right. You know, I mean, I have the, 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 side of that black page story was there used to be you know if a guy said he could play the black page then you know he had no groove at all <laughs> right you know he wasn't right. interested in he was he never listened to aretha live you know yeah right you know, <laughs> if his soul stew is not in his back pocket you know what i'm saying <laughs> it's just like dichotomy but i always sort of had one foot sort of in the jazz fusion world obviously it's easy to get labeled as a musician as much as i've tried you know, to get out of it and then how that overqualifies you for some pop gigs and, but whatever, you know, you end up here. So it was, it was exciting times. It was just music all the time, you know. Tell me about your solo records. Well, the, um, I guess it was when Steve got picked up by Relativity Records. He put out his first record, Flexible and Flexible Leftovers himself. And then they got picked up by, I think it's Cliff Coltrary, who was at um, Relativity Records. Um, and through them, that's how, you know, Gerald got, helped him get a record deal. And it all led to that, which is the next story. Um, but then they came, to, I was doing these solo bass gigs at a place called My Place in Santa Monica. 
No, yeah. Room, at my place, right? Yeah, right. It's now uh, a gourmet meat shop or something. Yeah. You know, like there in Wilshire. And, uh, you know, just to me, it's, it's hard to believe. I mean, I didn't invent tapping on the bass, but certainly one of its parents, you know? Yeah. Certainly, you know, have a big part of the DNA. Because just like what I played was just taking everything that's come before me and putting my own spin on it. You know, immediately after I started doing that, my first records, you know, some who shall remain nameless bass players came out. And it was just basically playing my stuff, you know? I mean, yeah, that's, yeah. That's the way it is. I mean, I used to, I used to try to play, you know, Jocko solos on with an Elvis Presley impersonator, you know, I mean, it was just, you know, one solo used to whip it like Jocko did at the end of a solo or <laughs> play Stanley Clark riffs over, you know, way down. <laughs> this is horrible. You know? <laughs> so, uh, but they came to see me play uh, my solo bass gigs and uh, the guys from Relativity Records and they gave me like $3,000 to do the record, you know, and they made me sign a piece of paper saying that, you know, I signed away my publishing for, you know, the rest of my oh, life. Oh, yeah, right. That stuff, you know. And uh, I said, well, great, sure. And, um, of course, I quickly ran out of money. And there was one song that I wrote called Flow My Tears where I wanted um, the melody to be played by a muted trumpet, like a Miles kind of thing. And the drummer on the record, Mike Barsamano, was playing with um, Mark Isham. Right. Mm. So I sent, sent the track to Mark. He got the track to Mark. And he liked it. And he said, I'd love to play on it. Uh, but what I need is I need um, uh, 50 bucks. I got to record at my home studio. And you got to pay my engineer 50 bucks. And and I didn't have, I mean, I'm not saying I didn't have $50 in my recording budget to allocate for a secondary recording engineer. It's like, I just, I couldn't come up with 50 bucks. Yeah. You know, my bass was in and out of the pawn shop on Van Nuys Boulevard. You know, it was yeah, just yeah. freaking broke, you know? Yeah. And um so then I called, I called, I guess the guy at Relativity Records, Cliff Culturian. I said, you know, I got a couple songs I need a solo and I, I ain't got no money. And then he, he said that they just signed a new guitar player, a uh, friend of Steve's, teacher of Steve's from Long Island. And he was doing a record. And what they would do was they'd do like a pro bono where I would fly, they would fly me to San Francisco and he would play a couple tracks on my song and I would play tracks on his song. So I was originally supposed to play a fretless bass on Joe's song Always, With Me Always With You from The Stripping With The Alien. And I flew up to San Francisco, High Street Studios, and they're just finishing the, the other tapes everywhere. And uh, that's the first time I met Joe, was when he played on Flow My Tears and Radio Free Albemuth and Sexually Active. And uh, we just didn't get have time for to put the bass track on Always. I don't know if he would have kept it, because, I mean, what makes that record work is kind of the static rhythm section you know of sort of pretty simple drum parts and he's playing bass which is basically just doubling you know the rhythm guitar part with the pick yeah yeah you know so uh musically it obviously leaves more room for uh the guitar and that's the way that his music is is worked out but uh and then joe started doing some gigs and we were just playing little places and then he, he got the gig with mick jagger and surfing took off and he was in rolling stone and time magazine and then you know bam yeah yeah it's great and good for you too. That was fun. It was good days, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tell me about your signature bases because you've had a lot of them. Well, three. Well, that's that's a lot. That's more than most people have. It, it it is. No, I mean, dude, I was really, you know, you know, I'm a mellow guy, but you know, all musicians are insecure egomaniacs. So, well, I'll, you know, sometimes I don't think I get enough credit for 
he, he maybe just saying being the first to get there, right, to the style of playing bass that now is a part of every bass player's DNA, really, mm-hmm. realistically, right? But one thing that, I'm, that I am proud of is I was the first person to ever have a Fender signature bass, right? And no one could ever change that. It's not going to make me rich, right? Yeah, yeah, it's not going to yeah. buy me a house in Burbank Hills up by Castaways and DeBell Golf Park. Yeah, yeah. You know? But, um, I mean, there's, that's something, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, back in the day, you know, Steve was, I saw Steve, you know, he was with, I think, Jackson and Shervell, and then Ibanez, and I saw Joe do Ibanez. So, obviously, that was, the, that's back when people used to make money, you know, called 1-800-SHRED, you know, and people had mullets and stuff. Yeah. So, obviously, that was sort of like, you know, that was the way, I always thought the way it worked was, you know, you're a good musician, and you got a gig in Weather Reporter with Zappa, and then you had your own career, right? So, this seemed to be the way you do it. You get a guitar deal. So I talked to a bunch of different bass companies, and I've been playing this bass called a Kabiki bass. Mm-hmm. It was really great. It had this ex, uh, extra fret on the D, like an upright extension, like on the classical bass. And uh, really cool looking, and I met those guys. I worked with them for ages, Phil Kabiki and Jeff Richardson, and it was great. Still have number 45, the bass they ever made, sort of a famous blue-black bass that I wrote and played a lot of that music on. And... Um, then they ended up getting bought out by Fender or Fender wanted to distribute them. And I think I was instrumental in that as far as going to these trade shows and dealer meetings. And, and again, playing this stuff that really no one had ever seen anyone doing the bass before. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, that certainly helped it. And then when I saw that, I thought, well, I had the opportunity to sort of make um, the modern things of, of what uh, the Kabiki had with, you know, obviously Fender. I mean, at a certain point, Fender, you know, Leo invented the, the P and J bass, and that was it. Yeah, Everything yeah. Kind of like, you know, it's cool, you know. Yeah. But really, you know, so there's nothing as cool as Fender, right? You know? Yeah. So, um, and so we came up with a design for the Urge bass, which was the first, you know, full 24 fret two octave jet, you know, ba- Fender bass with active pickups, and it was great. The original ones were short scale, and then. Um, the second version, the Urge Twos, were long scale, and they're great. I've got I've got a you know handful of them here in the house that I play all the time, and um, that was fun. I mean, and then you know Fender's a huge company, and they are a business, and um, it reached a point where you know they had a lot, a lot of signature bases for a lot of people, you know, and um, it was never super tight, changing door and politics and all that kind of stuff. But uh, at one point, they just uh, after like twenty years, just stopped making them, mm. you know. And I got to make a living, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, um, but that was with Washburn briefly. And, you know, the electric bass was cool, but the acoustic bass we made with them was fantastic because n- not to my knowledge, n- no one's made an acoustic bass with an adjustable and intonable bridge, right? Most acoustic mm. basses have that piece of bone, you know? Right, over right. The, over the bridge. So, and if I can't adjust each string's action or intonate, so that, you know, the G on the third fret is in tune with the G on the 15th fret, then I can't really play my stuff. Yeah. yeah. So we did that, and um, the solution was putting a block of wood in the body. So, but those are great bases, man. They're really great for recording a nice piezo on them. Um, it was that, and then, you know, this and that with, with Washburn and, um, you know, quality control and stuff from China and changing markets and everything, right? You know, yeah. 2008. You know, yeah, of course. And then a bunch of guys that I know have been playing Warwick and been telling me about, uh, you know, Hans Peter and, and what was going on over there. 
And uh, then they flew me over for one of the Hades. And for a while, they had these amazing bass camps, like every bass player in the world out in Eastern Germany. It was just beautiful, incredible, amazing. More bass players than you could even imagine in one room, you know. And uh, I met this guy named Marcus Spangler, who's the, the main bass designer. And he is, he's like a wood whisperer, you know. And they have this incredible, efficient German plant. And they age the wood, and it's all carbon neutral. And they could say where each piece of wood is from. And, you know, it's great. Beautiful, incredible, incredible, incredible instruments. Very cool. Where do you come down on amp sims? Amp simulators. That's two. If they can't see if this is audio only, that's two thumbs down. If I wanted it to sound like a shitty ampeg, I would play through a shitty ampeg. <laughs> you know? Man, I, I understand what they are. I mean, that's, you know, 98% of the musical instrument retail uh, customers are not professionals. So if you, you know, have this little knob and you can have fun with it, great. You know, so, I mean, well, you hear this? Who's the who's the bass player for Wolfpack? This new young kid, Joe. Yeah, yeah, I know who you mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, he's badass, and he's 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 you know he's he's got this new bass, this signature music band with one pickup on it. Yeah, you know. And I saw some video where he's going around. Man, you know, this one pickup is great because it can sound like Larry Graham and it can sound like a keyboard. I'm like, dude. I mean, I understand it, but that's your fingers. You know. Yeah, yeah. You yeah. would sound that way on any bass you play. When you go out, what do you bring with you? When you go out to play minimalist i mean for years when i did my solo show i would um try to do without any effects because you know i use this company called Wireworld, as you know that makes yeah, yeah. really big cables and uh mm -hmm. i have a signature amp now with mark bass and you know if i can get fresh ghs boomers on my bass and a nice cable directly into the amp flat then that gives the control to my hands yeah you know? and that's been successful sometimes uh, I've, I've since morphed into where I'm letting myself use some pedals just for fun, you know, not really looping too much. Cause I would have to, there's so many people that are so wonderful at that. Um, but you know, I've got like four or five TC pedals that I put just for subtle flavoring mm -hmm. you know, because I, I found the TC stuff, um, you know, again, doesn't eat away the tone. I've worked also with zoom and for digital, for digital regression, they're, they're the cleanest that I've found. Yeah, yeah. I like their stuff, and I like some of um, uh, who makes the the, um, the octave switcher. They they're pretty nice sounding, neutral. But you know, anything you put put the bass through, it dilutes the chain, and it's not like a guitar sound that's totally processed. You know, I like just the sound of the fingers. Yeah, what I found too is a lot of times the low end, the girth goes away. It's the lower mids. I mean, I I had you know someone just sent me a really cool looking wireless unit and you know it looked great and it'll be fun i wish it sounded good but it just it just adds a little compression and and takes away like the low mids which is sort of where my sound is at yeah 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 and yeah. compression is another thing it's like i man i you know i hate compression obviously if i'm you know here in the studio recording i'll put a little peek on it but again that just that just takes away the, the sound and control from your fingers well, you know, two schools of thought on it is one, you want to keep the signal as solid as possible and never move it. And the other part is I want it to be dynamic. You know, I yeah. don't want that. I want it to be dynamic. No, I mean, it's going to, it's going to get compressed the shit out of it anyway, when they yeah. turn it into an MP3 or if you're lucky, play it on the radio. Yeah. 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 Right. You have a great website. I'm really impressed because it shows all the things that you do on the side sort of. 
your online lessons and remote sessions, courses, books, things like that. So how did that all evolve? I, the books came first, right? Boy, I mean, back in the day, there's a real famous, the company was called Hotlicks and they had yeah. you know, VHS tapes and I had one called Slap, Pop and Tap. That was what way too many people learned how to play crap on the bass that got them fired from their gig. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, that, I mean, and again, coming from a family of educators, both my brothers, you know, are educators, you know, and, um, one of them teaches music at the music college and the other just teaches Chinese literature at UW. And, um, so, I mean, teaching is always part of what I do. Um, and that morphed into, I had, you know, a couple of books with Hal Leonard and, um, that I've been with Truefire for a number of years now. And I've got, like a dozen, almost a dozen courses supposed to be leaving in six days to do another two, but like all of my other work. Yeah. Yeah. Everything's kind of stopped. It'll come back. But, um, so there's that. And, um, the online lessons have always done them, you know, Skype, obviously this platform is much better. Yeah, it is. It's just amazing. You know? Um, and I do that. And another part of my income is just, you know, I'm no whiz engineer, but I can, you know, get around um, Logic and download a track. And I've got a nice ISO cabinet here that I had actually a Randall one that I had for my time at, at U.S. Music, which is Washburn. So uh, I just live in a, a nice little top floor of an apartment up in the foothills of L.A. And uh, so I've got this little cabinet enclosure with a 10-inch uh, speaker in it and then a mic on top of it. And it's closed in so that, you know, when I split it, because the thing is, you talk about the amp simulators, if I send the guy a, a direct signal and an amp process sound, it's, it's not that millisecond of delay. It's just not the same thing, you know? So even if it's a little crap, like it's funny because the amp on its own is sort of crappy sounding, but you mix it in, it just gives it this, this wideness. Yeah. Right. And, and if someone hires me, even though I mean, it's 99% DI, you know, when I play and record my records, but you got to give them the option if they want to screw up the sound. That's their thing. Last question, Stu. What is the best piece of business advice that you learned along the way or maybe somebody imparted to you? Well, number one is, is you know, if, if you get a chance at, at something approaching the, the big time or something real is to get a lawyer, you know, is don't, don't be cheap at that initial stage, you know, yeah. spend the money to have someone that knows what they're doing look over that contract before you sign it. You know? It's too easy when you're first starting to jump at whatever is put in front of you. They know that. Yeah. They, they're, they're counting on that. Well, especially know? too, if you're, if you're broke and it yeah. looks like it's a break, sure. That's what you're going to do. I mean, don't those guys that go on like American Idol have to like sign with their record and give Simon Cowell, you know, half their income for the first 20 years of their life or something ridiculous. It's, it's pretty bad. Yeah. As I understand it, it, it's, it's pretty onerous, but, uh, either you sign it or you don't go on. No, that's it, man. I mean, I, obviously I would have said, um, you know, people hire who they like too. Right. You know, then you're really not going to hire a guy they don't like, you know, or don't like hanging out with. And then, you know, if I could go back, I mean, hindsight is 2020, but certainly no one ever except me. And actually some people do now, but talks about, the physical aspects of bass playing, you know, and I never had a class in, you know, acupuncture or spinal control or posture or breathing at Berkeley, right? They may have it now, yeah. but I wish they had, you know, then I wouldn't have had the quite the neck and shoulder problems I have now, you know? 
So it would have been great to go back earlier, maybe, and and start, you know, breathing and 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 yoga and meditation and stuff like that. And you know, certainly, uh, you know, the drug and alcohol thing, you gotta you gotta keep a lid on that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's talk a little bit about you had some physical problems from playing, and and I can understand that, especially when you have a even with a light instrument, it's tough. You do it enough. How did you overcome that? You know, I, had, I guess it was about 1991 when I, I got off tour. I had an album called The Urge that was sort of like my quasi-hit. I, I sang on it, and it's really embarrassing and all that kind of stuff. And um, just my wrist was killing me. So I actually, Billy Sheehan turned me on to this chiropractor that was in L.A. at the time, treating a lot of musicians. He was working with um, Keith Emerson. And uh, I actually, for a while, you know, I had a bass endorsement. I had a chiropractic endorsement. He would use my face in ads. Now I get like two free adjustments a month. <laughs> that's awesome. It was awesome. Uh, so that, that sort of opened my eyes to just the more holistic approach of, of medicine and, you know, uh, that led to, you know, yoga and meditation and stuff like that. But, you know, a good friend of mine, Dr. Randall Kurtz, is a bass player and chiropractor. He has a book called um, uh, Pain Management and Injury Prevention for Bass Players. Mm. And, you know, I mean, everyone gets a bass player shoulder. You can't expect to do this for... I've been playing bass for 47 years, you know, and yeah. not shoulder to hurt. But if you take the time to warm up, I mean, no athlete will just put on their, you know, outfit and go play a game. They warm up and they cool down. And, you know, it's not as much as drums, but it's a physical thing playing a bass. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and I just think if you're more aware of that early on, you can develop good habits of breathing, of stretching, of warming up, of, you know, keeping yourself loose. Um, and I just don't think that's addressed enough. You can find out more about Stu at stewham.com. That's stewham, S-T-U-H-A-M-M, all one word, dot com. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyoinnercircle.com. To listen to other episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to bobbyoinnercircle.com, or you can find it on iTunes, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Play, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, TuneIn Radio, Radio Public, and Podbean. At BobbyOsinski.com and BobbyOwnerCircle.com, you'll also find a sign-in form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. <laughs>